Hello. You're a member of a tribe. Because you listen to this pod, it's likely to be a tribe of university-educated, progressively-minded Westerners. Ironically, or tragically, depending on how you look at it, one of the characteristics of our tribe is that we are suspicious of tribalism, and we have a tendency to think our values and intellect are not tribal norms, but universal truths. This hubris partly explains why what seemed like a dominant worldview 20 years ago is now under great pressure. Arguably, the only universal is the importance to all of us of context, the histories, the rituals, the norms that make us who we are. So today I will ask my guest how we might become a bit better at acknowledging that we view the world through distorting spectacles and even able sometimes to remove them and see the world as others see it. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Financial Times editor-at-large and best-selling author Gillian Tett. Her latest book, Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life, is just out. It's a fantastic read. Welcome, Gillian. Thank you very much indeed, and it's great to be part of your podcast. Let's start from the kind of most basic question of all. What, what is it that distinguishes anthropology from its close cousins in the other social sciences? Well, one of the taglines to distinguish anthropology, as a man called Howard Miner, an anthropologist once said, is that anthropology is devoted to making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. What that means is that it goes into other cultures and tries to immerse yourself into those cultures to understand a different mindset, even if that mindset initially seems completely weird, exotic, strange, whatever label you want to toss around out of fear. And the belief is that by doing that process of immersion, by embracing culture shock, you not only get more empathy for the way that different people in the world think, which is crucial in a world that is both globally integrated, globalized, and also very polarized, but you also, as a double win-win, get a much better perspective to look back at yourself and do the second part of Howard Miner's phrase to make the familiar strange, to look at your own life as a Martian would, and most importantly, see all the blind spots and cultural assumptions that we tend to ignore. So it's, it's interesting. It's a, kind of a combination, really, anthropology, isn't it? It's partly subject matter, so the focus on groups and cultures. It's partly perspective, exactly as you've emphasised, kind of trying to see the world through the eyes of others. And it's partly a methodology, the kind of ethnographic deep dive methodology. You take quite a kind of permissive view, I think, of what counts as anthropology. So you, you're not requiring that all three of those elements are there all at the same time. But is there is there one you think that's the most important in terms of subject matter, perspective and method? Well, trying to define anthropology is a bit like trying to chase soap in the bath, in that, as you say, there are different elements to the anthropology discipline. It has changed dramatically in the last 150 years, because in the 19th century, it really emerged out of Charles Darwin's evolutionary ideas that prompted people to look for the origins of 
mankind. They weren't very politically correct then, so women tended to get written out of the picture. But And they did so when they looked at the origins of mankind, both physically, and that's led to physical anthropology, but also culturally. They were often very racist, and much of the analysis was devoted towards propping up the empire or justifying it. Since then, in the 20th century, anthropology moved from being a bastion of racism to becoming the social sciences arguably most committed to being anti-racist and championing the cause of marginalised people. Quite a change. And as part of that, it began to say, well, if all cultures are equally important and valuable, we should be looking at our own culture, Western society, using the same lens that we use to look at other cultures. So there is that kind of uncertainty about what anthropology stands for. In some ways, the methodology is the easiest one to do, explain because it really means going to a culture, eyeballing it face to face, trying to look at the world through the eyes of ordinary people or get what anthropologists sometimes call the worm's eye view, not the bird's eye view, and trying to take a holistic view and see how everything is interconnected. But that's what many people call ethnography. It's a practice of anthropology. There's also a whole rich seam of ideas around the theory of anthropology, which is less well known. But at the end of the day, all these definitional labels, in some ways, don't really matter, because it's true that many anthropology ideas do crop up in psychology, use of research, sociology, geography, you name it. What really matters is simply the fundamental principle of trying to see the world through other people's eyes and realise that not everyone thinks like you do. And one of the things that's fascinating in the book, of course, is that you use anthropology. You are an anthropologist. That's how you were trained. And the book starts with you doing your own piece of ethnographic work. And people might think, well, that's great. But then you move to being a financial journalist. And, you know, that that's a anthropology is no longer going to be relevant to you in, in that world. Give us an insight into how anthropology has really helped you with the task of reporting on what's going on in the world of finance. Well, to be perfectly honest, after I did my anthropology PhD and I joined the Financial Times as a journalist, I initially thought that, in fact, I'd left behind a lot of that cultural studies because in the world of money and finance, certainly at the turn of the century, there was a presumption that the only intellectual tools that really mattered were quantitative ones. And if you couldn't put it into an algorithm, you couldn't really pay much attention to it. And it took me a while to realise that, in fact, anthropology had shaped the way that I saw the world in a way that I myself wasn't fully aware of. And it had instilled in me this instinctive reflex to look at things in a holistic way, look bottom up, try to pay as much attention to what anthropologists call social silences, what people don't say rather than just what they do say, and try and look at rituals and symbols to see how those often define social boundaries and reveal people's worldview. And that sounds incredibly theoretical, but for me, one of the most important moments came when I went down to Nice in 2005. And by then I was running the capital markets team at the Financial Times. And so operating in a world where most people, i.e. bankers, thought that culture wasn't that important. And I sat in an investment banking conference and it suddenly hit me that what I was seeing around me was almost identical to what I'd once seen in my fieldwork site as an anthropologist in Tajikistan. And in Tajikistan, I studied ritual weddings. And in many ways, the function that ritual weddings play in terms of assembling a scattered tribe, bringing people together to reinforce social ties and through rituals, express and further reiterate and reinforce a distinctive worldview or a mental map of how to organize the world. 
I'd seen that in Tajikistan with wedding rituals, and that was exactly what the investment banking conference was doing as well, for better, and as it later turned out in the 2007 crash, for worse, because so many of the problems that later caused the great financial crisis were on display in the rituals of that investment banking conference. And you give many examples in the book of how anthropology is now being used by businesses to help them understand, for example, why it is that sometimes teams find it hard to work together because they're often kind of talking not to each other, but past each other. And it takes an anthropologist to get to this and to explain it. Do you want to give us an example of this kind of applied anthropology taking place within business? Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, most companies have not had the courage to let anthropologists loose on their own operations. Companies have started to use anthropologists to study their customers, i.e. people who might seem strange to them. But looking back at the familiar, their own internal workings, is something that many companies feel rather nervous of doing. But one company that, to its credit, did do that was General Motors. And there was an in-house anthropologist back at the turn of the century who did a fascinating study of why a merger between a German car group and one based in Tennessee and one based in Detroit had gone so badly wrong. And what she found was that the people in the car engineering groups thought that the whole thing was a disaster because they couldn't agree on the science of cars and that there were ethnic conflicts between the Germans and the Americans. And what the anthropologist realized when she actually observed them was that the source of many of the problems was something much more fundamental, which is that they kept having meetings to talk about how to resolve the differences. But the three different groups started with completely different unstated assumptions about what the whole point of a meeting was. Some people thought that a meeting was where you made decisions. Some people thought it was where you enforced decisions. Some people thought that you needed to have a consensus-based system. Some people thought it was a hierarchical system. So you had these three different groups coming with entirely different cultural assumptions, and they hadn't even noticed how different the assumptions were because everyone tosses the word around meeting without thinking about what it really means. And there's this great big social silence around the fact that actually meetings can mean completely different things to different groups of people or different cultures. And that matters. And it's going to matter when we all go back to the office. Speaking of this this idea of us going back to the office, I'm one of those people, Gillian, who tends to the view that we will probably go back more than we think we're going to go back. And you offer a kind of explanation for why that might be the case in the book with this concept of incidental information exchange. And that being something which we pick up in the office, something which anthropologists notice. Tell us more about that concept. And do you think that that notion of incidental information exchange could be one of the reasons why we are probably underestimating the degree to which we will, most of us, return to the office. Well, Matthew, I think you're absolutely right about this point. And my interest in incidental information exchange and another concept in anthropology called sense-making really is encapsulated by the work of someone called Daniel Bayunza, who's at the Cass School of Business in London, who's been studying investment bankers since the late 1990s. And He saw that really starting in the year 2000, there was a paradox in that the way that markets were moving into online cyberspace meant that actually the banks didn't really need people in the office at all because any trader with a Bloomberg terminal could actually do most of the functions they were doing in the office at home. 
And yet, in spite of having the ability to trade remotely, investment banks from the year 2000 all started building bigger and bigger trading floors. And they did that partly because it was a status symbol, but also because many financiers recognized something they couldn't quite articulate, which was that the value of being in an office or a trading floor is that even if you're doing a lot of work online, digitally, in a disembodied way, the way you absorb information is really based on a kind of three-dimensional process called sense-making, where you absorb signals from all around you, often in a manner that you're not even properly aware of. And that helps people as a group to navigate. And it has dangers because it means that the people who you're actually directly linked to in your own little cubicle might all be the same as you and you end up with tunnel vision or ghetto or an echo chamber. But what companies often really need to do, and they don't always articulate it, is to make sure the different teams bump up into each other because it's often at the edges on the boundaries of those different teams that the most important information is exchanged and you get real innovation. So incidental information exchange is a kind of serendipity that occurs when you bump into someone else from another team, you overhear something in the cafeteria, you hear another group shouting over their dividers a few desks down, and you absorb that into your sense-making process to work out how to navigate the world. And it's very hard to do that online because small teams with high levels of social capital generally can replicate their communication online because they know each other well. The problem really is large groups of people who don't have that level of social capital struggle precisely because of the lack of incidental information exchange. Yes, I I think we are online in some senses less than fully human. I I heard a story the other day of an organisation where their meeting was taking place and there were three people who were online and there were three people in a room together in the office. And there was a break halfway through the meeting. And when the three people in the office had come back with their cup of coffee or whatever, the three people who were online had a conversation and they said, we would like the three of you there in the office to go to your terminals. Because we feel that this is not a meeting of six people. This is a meeting of three individuals and a group. And it is making us feel uncomfortable. And I was reminded of that with this notion of incidental information exchange, that they couldn't potentially articulate it. But what they were saying was there is a quality of communication going on when three people in a room together, which is qualitatively different from the quality of communication that's going on with people who are online. And I suspect that is something that we're going to run up against quite a lot in this kind of hybrid working environment. I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. And I think that phrases like sense-making, incidental information exchange, need to be understood by anybody who's working in an institution right now. And one way to understand sense-making is from the work of an anthropologist called Lucy Suchman, who's at the University of Lancaster now, but used to work at Xerox as part of a team of anthropologists. And she pointed out that the truckies sailors over in Polynesia didn't navigate using the type of skills that people used to GPS would expect, which was plotting out their course in advance, having a preset idea about where they wanted to head and pointing at it in a logical, linear way. Instead, they knew vaguely where they wanted to go and they moved as a group by absorbing all the information around them from the waves, the sea, the stars, the wind, etc., and got to wherever they were going in an incredibly effective way because they're brilliant sailors but using different skills. And in an office, we think we basically all use the equivalent of GPS to make decisions. 
so we are rational and logical. And when we do our internet work, we kind of transpose that assumption onto how we all interact and assume that rational, one-directional, logical thought predominates. But the reality is an office is all about sense-making. And that is a problem that we face in terms of trying to, not just having put it online last year, but work out how to sense-make with different types of people in different environments going forward. Well, you, you talk about that kind of assumption of rationality. And I, I spoke in opening our conversation about the fact that our lack of anthropological vision may in some ways explain why it is that Francis Fukuyama was not right that the fall of the Berlin Wall marked the end of history, because it turned out that the the kind of liberal, progressive, educated view of the world, which people like Francis Fukuyama thought had become dominant was not dominant. Indeed, it was a set of blinkers, which meant that policymakers, decision makers didn't understand how a lot of other people were experiencing what was going on in the world. So would you link our failure to view the world anthropologically as in some ways partly connected to this kind of crisis of liberal democracy that we're experiencing? I would to a large degree, Matthew, and I think you raise a very good point there. The metaphor I use in the book is that of somebody trying to navigate a dark wood at night with a compass. And if you have a compass, they can be incredibly useful to tell you which way to go. And you certainly don't want to throw your compass away. But if you walk through that wood and just look down at the compass at the dial all the time, and only look at that dial, you will walk into a tree. And that to me is a good metaphor to explain what's happening with economic models today, big data sets, corporate balance sheets, and yes, political polls and political thinking as well, in the sense that, you know, we've developed in the late 20th century all these truly fantastic tools to help us navigate, like economic models, and they're often brilliant. But the problem is that they're only brilliant if you don't use them with tunnel vision alone. You need to have lateral vision as well, and you need to have, above all else, an awareness of context. And you particularly need to have an awareness of context when the context is changing. So by way of example, you know, an economic model can be brilliant, but an economic model by definition relies on your inputs. And there are externalities like the environment or climate change. And now it's become clear that climate change has become such a big issue that if you ignore that externality, your economic model could be upended. Or to go back to Fukuyama, you know, when he developed the vision about the end of history after the fall of, of the Soviet Union, or rather the Berlin Wall, he presumed in a sense that there were only really two types of political systems in his political model or his vision of history, communism, capitalism, and capitalism, Western capitalism had, had triumphed. And yet the reality is that there are actually a whole bunch of things weren't even in his model, which he would have seen if he had both tried to use more empathy to understand the minds of other people, but also step back out of his world and try to explore social silences. And this links, doesn't it, also to Joseph Heinrich's concept of, of weird thinking and the value of anthropological thinking, which lies in understanding that we ourselves are strange to others. Absolutely. And I think you raise a very good point about Joseph Heinrich, because it's a universal trait of humankind that we all think that the way that we operate and think and interact with others is universal and natural and inevitable. But it never is. And that point applies to highly educated Western people as well, as Heinrich explains so brilliantly in his book. And he uses a phrase 
weird to describe highly educated people in the West because it stands for Western educated, individualistic, rich and democratic. And weird people do presume the world should be organized on a logical, sequential, rational way. That's partly because that's the way that the alphabet system and the Roman alphabet in our languages operate. You, know, you start on one side and move sequentially through to the other. It's also because you know that's the entire basis of the educational system that's drummed into people. But there's two important things to realize about that. Firstly, although weird people dominate the discourse and assume that they think this way and everyone else should think that way, other cultures don't think that way necessarily. And Joseph does a great job of plotting the difference in different cultures. Even within a single country or national culture, there are variations, quite significant variations. And secondly, weird people aren't always as weird as they like to tell themselves that they are, in the sense that they're not always quite as rational, logical, or even as individualistic as they think. And, you know, although the consumer goods industry has been based on this idea that you can use individual psychology to explain consumption choices, that's simply not true. We're all influenced by people around us in ways we can't always articulate or understand. And similarly, although, you know, a weird mentality really fostered this concept of individualistic competition in the late 20th century, particularly between companies, you know, as you yourself have pointed out, Matthew, you know, we're actually at a bit of an inflection point right now where issues of collaboration and cohesion are becoming more valued. Yeah, I think that um, I'm focusing my time now thinking about the health system and this kind of anthropological perspective can be incredibly powerful there as well, particularly because in a sense, what you have in the health system is a tendency to view the world through the eyes of, of doctors and assume that that's the only way to kind of understand the world. But actually, how people themselves perceive themselves, perceive their illnesses may not fit that kind of notion that illness is a bad thing and it's simply a matter of applying science to cure it. I remember a study a few years ago about people who had diabetes. And although, of course, they would rather not have had the diabetes, it was also part of their identity. And they also felt a certain pride in the way in which they managed the condition. And so to talk about it in entirely negative terms actually went past them because it, it didn't kind of engage with their own sense of agency. And I think often public policy written by weird people makes assumptions about how people feel about illness or or being on benefits or whatever else it might be without actually spending the time to interrogate slightly more how people sense make in their own lives. Well, I couldn't agree more about that. And I would actually say that that's very true within, you know, health systems in general. But it's very true if you just look back about the whole question of masks during the pandemic. And when the pandemic started, the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the tragedies, many tragedies of what American and British policymakers didn't do was to really recognize there was a whole body of literature out there from anthropologists who've looked at what happened on the ground in West Africa in Ebola and also in Asia during things like SARS. And one of the points that came out in SARS was that wearing masks is a very powerful tool, not just for physical medical reasons, because it physically stops germs, but also because the very act of putting on a mask each day is a psychological prompt to somebody to remember to change their behavior. But also it acts as a very potent signaling device to other people and yourself that you are committed to upholding ideas about civic responsibility and social norms. Unfortunately, in America, it also became a very powerful signaling device about political affiliation. But the signaling device is very important. And 
it's sort of quite empowering for people to actually put on a mask and feel that they are doing something to try to control risks. Now, what I find fascinating is that where I live in New York, the local authorities in New York appear to have recognized that from the start and put out utterly consistent messaging on a local level, you know, leave aside what happened at the White House under Trump, but on a local level, totally consistent messaging around masks and really inculcated a very strong sense that although New Yorkers are wildly individualistic and normally hate being told what to do in herds, they needed to basically show their individual strength by upholding civic norms. And if they put on a mask, they themselves could have some empowerment and agency. And mask adoption was almost universal, even though there weren't any criminal fines and, in fact, very few laws requiring it. In London, by contrast, the messaging was completely contradictory. People often saw masks as something being imposed on them by government, like many of the pandemic controls. And there was a very patchy level of compliance. And I think that may also help to explain some of the differing paths of the pandemic. Blending social, medical and data science is absolutely crucial in any type of attempt to improve health outcomes. You've been kind enough to watch the Minimate that was done of my kind of final event at the RSA around the set of ideas that I call coordination theory. And I just wanted to turn to a couple of those ideas and the final part of our conversation, Gillian. So the first is that, as you know, what I argue in, in that is that we have a set of very basic kind of motivational frames. And my sense is that what anthropology focuses on one of those in particular, and it focuses on the belonging and values part of that. So we are motivated by what we're told to do. And we, a lot of the time, we just do what we're told to do. If we didn't, there would be complete chaos. I don't just mean blame the law, but we listen to experts and follow advice, etc. And a lot of the time, we make choices and we're aware of the choices that we make. I chose that cup of coffee. I chose that career or whatever. But the impact of belonging and the impact of values, the impact of the context we're in is often much harder to understand. It, we don't understand it in the same way we understand a choice or we understand the way in which authority bears down on us. And so we systematically underestimate the impact of culture on our behavior and attitudes and our life. Do, do you think that's right? And do you think, therefore, that kind of one of the really big things about anthropology is it just forces us to think a bit more deeply about the way in which belonging and values shape us? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. And I wish I'd seen your Minimate presentation before I wrote my book, frankly, because I would have given it a big shout out. Because quite apart from the fact that you draw heavily on one anthropological thinker who I think is one of the most brilliant in the field called Mary Douglas, I do think you make a very good point about the fact that we do need to think both around our horizontal aspect of belonging to groups and also the vertical hierarchies that shape us and frame how we live. And in many ways, the fact that we have this weird mentality cons us into thinking that we are entirely free-floating individuals who are totally individualistic and choose whatever we want. We often can, but we are shaped in our choices in this way. So I do hope there's more recognition of the cultural context going forward. And the tag that I often use is to say, well, in a world increasingly shaped by artificial intelligence, we need another type of intelligence, which is anthropology intelligence. You know, there are two AIs out there, and it's time to try and coordinate and blend them. Because the other thing to realize is that AI-based tools are essentially built by amassing enormous amounts of data about what's happening in the present and the recent past. Not always the recent past, but basically it's present and past. That's what the machines read. And they look for correlations. And that's incredibly useful. 
you know, like the compasses. So it's amazingly useful. But correlation is not causation. And if you want to start understand causation, you need to start thinking about culture. And if you want to see how things might be changing, you need to recognize that if the context around an AI model changes, that AI system may not be quite as all-powerful as we think it is. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Gillian, was I'm also rather obsessed by this kind of fourth force, which isn't really a force, which is fatalism. And it seems to me one of the things that, again, is weird about our culture is that we don't really have a way of dealing with fatalism, which is an inherent part of the human condition, because we are aware of the fact that we're going to die and worse, the world will go on after we've died. But also that often fatalism is the right attitude because we won't be able to change things. Now, it, it seems to me that other societies have ways of dealing with this and that religion was the way in which we might have dealt with it. But we're now in a society where we can't talk about it. We don't know how to deal with that aspect of life, with our own mortality, with the fact that in the end, we're not omnipotent, that some things we can't changed. Uh, do you think that we need to find a way of, of, of embracing our inner fatalism? I think you raise a very interesting point there because the pandemic has really brought us face to face with the issue of death in a way that we often try to ignore in the Western world. It's brought us face to face with the issue of risk and a realisation that we can't always control risks quite as neatly as we think. It's made us question the edges of our social boundaries. You know, who do we want to be in our pod? Who do we think should be around us or not? But it's also made us question the question of empowerment. You know, how do we make decisions? And values, you know, what are we actually living for? You know, is it worth being cooped up for a year to reduce your risks? Or do we actually think that social interaction is more valuable or not? And I don't think we have yet seen the longer term consequences of what these shocks will do to our zeitgeist. I think the work that you're doing in terms of looking at collaboration and thinking about hierarchies and structures and belonging is very important because I do think that we may see in the coming years the wider zeitgeist change in these respects. You know, people joke about millennials being more valued orientated or less obsessed with just, you know, Thatcherite style principles and making money at all costs. Maybe that's a fad, but maybe that's the start of a real zeitgeist shift. I suspect that the sight of seeing government collaborating with the private sector to hunt for a vaccine, and perhaps most importantly, different companies collaborate with each other, may also start to reshape expectations around companies, particularly around issues like climate change. So I do think we are entering a very interesting moment of a shifting zeitgeist. And we need to recognise that you know yesterday may not be the perfect guide to tomorrow. And then finally, Gillian, I was amused by the postscript in, in a sense in your book and it amused me because I I could see why you felt you had to write it but right at the end of the book you have a little letter to anthropologists and there's two sides to it the first is a slightly defensive thing and I completely get this as someone who's been trying to write about conceptual ideas but isn't an academic which is kind of saying look don't be too purist you know I'm trying to get people engaged in anthropology and don't criticize me from your academic perspective for the fact that that I've tried to open up these ideas to people but then the other side of your argument which I also completely agree with is saying to the anthropologists look you know why don't you work a bit harder to make your work accessible you can sometimes be your own worst enemies by using jargon and kind of focusing on tiny differences between yourselves rather than getting out there and engaging with people 
And as you know from that, Miname, I too have kind of, there's a desperate frustration I have with social science in that, you know, if we look at what's happening in the world around us, basically people trust science and they don't really trust social science. And yet social science doesn't seem to be able to get its act together to be able to kind of find common and accessible frameworks which might engage the public? Do you think Do you think I'm overstating that? No, I think you're completely correct. It's partly because social science is quite fragmented and people end up very worried about different labels. And that's really a function of university departments and the tenure structure. It's also because the nature of anthropology both creates its brilliant skills and also it creates its own flaws and anthropologists are often their own worst enemies. The type of person who tends to be attracted to going into a discipline where you're expected to patiently and quietly and humbly observe other people often is not the kind of person who wants to be in the limelight and steal the microphone. You know, I mean, many anthropologists view me with quite a lot of suspicion, to be honest. And the kind of people who spend years studying power structures, as you've done in your own work, often end up when you've looked at hierarchies of power, you often end up being so cynical and angry about that. Or if you look at money, you end up being so cynical about money that you're often pretty anti-establishment. And that doesn't put you in a great position to try and use the networks of power and influence that would get your ideas into the mainstream. You know, very opposite of, say, an economist. And then there's a problem that anthropologists are trained to see life in multiple shades of grey, which is, again, part of their strength because life is multiple shades of grey. But if you're trying to communicate easy, quick messages, it's hard to talk in grey. People want black or white. And many anthropologists feel that if they start talking in shades of black and white, then they somehow betrayed the cause. And again, that makes it difficult to engage. So, you know, I fully expect that some anthropologists will attack me about what I've written because they feel that it somehow oversimplified their craft Some may resent the idea of even employing anthropology in the service of business and companies or other institutions because there is this very dark legacy of Victorian England when anthropologists were employed to uphold empire, where there was a lot of racism. And by the way, that happened in America as well. And so after that, some anthropologists say that it's completely wrong for any of them to be working for powerful companies like, you know, like tech sector. So I accept all that, but I feel passionately like you do, Matthew, and I salute the work you're doing, that these ideas have to get into the mainstream of discussion. The pandemic showed us that when we just use medical science or just use computer science to fix problems, we can't get anywhere because a pandemic is about changing human behavior. And for that, you need social science. And I can't think of anyone who's articulated it quite so clearly as Gus O'Donnell the former head of the British Civil Service, who said, you know, the government in Britain drew on medical science in the first round of pandemic fighting measures, and it didn't work because they needed social science as well. Yeah, and of course, you've seen this, Gillian, because you've also seen, being a financial journalist, the baleful impact of economic orthodoxy. So it's not just in the academy that those kind of mythical ideas of the perfectly informed homo economicus ruled. Those are ideas that influenced policymakers. It led to the complacency around financial instruments which led up to the crisis. And I think that one of the reasons books like yours are so important and demanding that academics take their ideas out of the academy 
is that ideas which seem to be credible in the academy are almost immediately incredible to other people. So if, if, if economists had really had to say to ordinary human beings, we think you are a perfectly informed utility maximizer who views the world entirely through a con- constant process of formulate cost-benefit calculation. People would have said, well, what are you talking about? That's not me. Similarly, if sociologists were required to explain to everybody that they can only understand their life in terms of a kind of system of oppression where they're blinded by the forces of power in society, they'd kind of go, well, hmm, that's, there's more to it than that. Or if people were required to believe in social psychologists with their kind of experiments with American students, which from which they draw enormous conclusions, yet the experiment takes place in a very kind of peculiar... So all of this academic work goes on, and you, you feel in a way part of the reason why it's not accessible is because if it was made accessible, the public would, would laugh at quite a lot of it. Well, I agree. And again, anthropologists have been very slow about promoting their ideas because of the character traits I mentioned earlier. You know, one of the first occasions when they actually got themselves organised and did that was during the Ebola pandemic or epidemic in West Africa in 2014, where essentially Western efforts to try and contain that epidemic went completely badly wrong for the first six months because it was just focused on medical science and computer science to a certain degree. And the anthropologists could see what was going wrong. And so eventually they got themselves together and tried to insert a social science perspective into the debate. And that really changed a lot of the path of the Ebola pandemic. They tried to do that with COVID at an early stage. Some of them did, but they weren't very organized and weren't very forceful about getting their messages out, which is a tremendous pity and a tragedy. And I very much hope that as we try to build back better, to use that phrase, which is now becoming quite a cliche, that there will be a recognition that you need to blend economic science, social science, medical science, computing science to try and solve problems. I sometimes joke that anthropology is a bit like salt in that when you add it to other ingredients like economics, you make the ingredients taste better and bind together more effectively. You know, anthropology can provide checks and balances in the context to see the way that other people look at the world. But we need that. And we need that very badly right now. And we need all of the academic disciplines to get engaged in talking to each other. Well, thank you, Gillian. Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life is a wonderful book. I recommend it. In a way, it'll help you think about the world differently, but help you think about yourself differently. It's a kind of exercise, a very entertaining exercise, I'd say, in kind of social and cultural mindfulness. Gillian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. And the last thing I'd say is that pandemic has in some ways turned us all into amateur anthropologists. The shock has made us all learn that we can't take anything for granted. And frankly, that's good. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.